You're listening to a podcast from York City Church. If you like what you hear and you'd like to find out more, please visit our website at www.yorkcitychurch.org.uk. Alrighty, good morning everyone. Welcome to York City Church. If you are a guest today or a visitor, if it's your first time at City Church, you're really, really welcome. My name's Al, I'm one of the leaders, and this morning we're going to be in our penultimate Sunday morning looking at the Psalms of Ascent. Uh, if you weren't around last week, uh, for whatever reason, I would encourage you to have a listen to Emily Olty's fantastic exposition of uh, last week's psalm. Um, have a listen to that, it will do you real good. It was, a, it was absolutely brilliant, so thanks to Em for that. Uh, this morning we're going to be spending some time in Psalm 132. But before we do that, why don't we bow our heads briefly and pray. Uh, I confess sometimes I'm so eager to get into it that I sort of forget to to pray in this moment. And I think God is very kind and gracious, but it's really important, isn't it, that we we commit this time to God and that we ask him to come and speak to us, right? So let's do that. Father, we're so thankful that, that you're a God who makes himself known, a God who reveals himself a God who delights to reveal himself to his people, to those who are eagerly seeking him. And we want to be a people eagerly seeking with ears and hearts, minds attuned to you. We recognize, oh God, that we need the Holy Spirit, that nobody ever, ever stumbled upon a knowledge of you without you doing some pretty big revealing work yourself. So we want to ask Holy Spirit that you would meet with us and encounter us through the unfolding of your word this morning. May it be life and nourishment and goodness to us. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen. Okie dokie then, so we are looking at Psalm 132. It's been this series on the Psalms were sent, something like an ancient playlist. It's what the Israelites on their uh, pilgrimage to Jerusalem three times a year would have sung some or all of these Psalms as they made their way up to worship. Uh, and so it kind of speaks to us about journey and we can find lots of parallels and things that speak to us about our Christian pilgrimage, our journey, our walk with God in the Lord Jesus. Psalm 132, what can I say about this psalm? I'm going to give you just two or three things. If you'd ask me how can you sort of summarize in a shortish way what this psalm is about, well, I would say this, that it's the longest of all the psalms of ascent for a start. So we've got a, a longer text this morning to reflect on. And this psalm is a poetic reflection on two sides of a story. It's kind of doing a couple of different things. Uh, One side of the story is the Lord God, Yahweh, his commitment to the king. Not to our king, but to the king in Jerusalem, uh, to to his dwelling place with his people, to to his people as the Israelites. The other side of the reflection is the answering voice of the people of God, rehearsing the story in prayer and reminding the Lord God of his commitments, speaking boldly, reminding him of what he said he would do and who he said he would be. So what is the story that Psalm 132 is reflecting on? Well, it's the story of when King David brought the Ark of the Covenants 
back to Jerusalem. The ark had been lost, the Philistines had had it, that went badly for the Philistines, and then the ark of the Lord made its own way back and found its way to a particular spot in the countryside, and God blessed the household of Obed-Edom, and after a while, David remembers the ark of the covenant and makes a plan to go and bring the ark of the covenant that represents the presence of God with his people, to bring the ark back to Jerusalem. That's the story that lies behind this psalm. It's an interesting story. In in the way it's told in the Old Testament, the Lord turns the tables on David a little bit. David's got this big plan. I know. I'm going to build a house for God. I live in this plush palace. God lives in a tent. That's not good enough. Let's get the ark, bring it back, build God a house. And God says, "Uh -uh. (laughs) uh-uh. No, you don't. I'm going to build you a house, David. And when we hear house there, by the way, it means dynasty. God promises David that his throne would never lack one of his descendants to sit upon it. There would be an eternal throne, kingship, kingdom that would belong to David and his family if his sons walk in his ways and keep his commandments. So that's, in a nutshell, the story that lies behind Psalm 132. You can read the story in 2 Samuel 6 and 7 if you wish. You can do that on your own time. Please don't spend the rest of the sermon on your phone trying to read that while I'm speaking. That would be very nice. Thank you very much. So let's get into Psalm 132. We're going to read some sections and comment as we go, as usual. So here we go. O Lord, remember in David's favor all the hardships he endured. How he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob. I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids. Sounds like David was a student. Until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. And we'll go back to there again. So, Psalm 132 begins, it kicks off with an appeal to Yahweh, the Lord God of Israel, to remember something in David's favor. Isn't that an interesting way to start? It's a fairly safe bet to assume that David was long dead when this psalm was written. So why does the psalmist want God to remember something in his favor? Normally, if you're going to ask God to remember something in someone's favor, you would be asking it for somebody who is alive, alive, oh, for who might benefit from that, but not in this case. Well, let's remember what God promised David. I've just explained it to you. God said that he would give David a dynasty, an everlasting throne. One of your sons, one of your descendants will occupy the throne for, 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 easy for you to say, for perpetuity. And so the psalm begins with a prayer for whoever was king at the time of writing. Now, in case you're wondering, it's unclear. There are best guesses in scholarship. Some scholars even think that this psalm perhaps has its origins in the post-exile years when when the Israelites had returned to the land and are trying to find some stability and sense of worship and habit and ritual all over again. Whatever is happening... Whatever the background is specifically, the prayer is, remember how David was, O God. And the longing is that God would do that in order that David's righteousness, if you like, the hardships, the things that he did 
that somehow they would count for the current person who is on the throne. You understand? It's a way of saying, remember him for their sake. Right? So look back in order to call for those blessings and God's faithfulness now. Specifically, it's about the hardships David endured, though. When David found out about the Ark of the Covenant and remembered and decided to bring it back to Jerusalem, he made some particular decisions. And the psalmist enters into that imaginatively. Uh, He says, this is the words that he puts in David's mouth, I will not enter my house or get into my bed or not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids. The imagination here is that David was so committed to the Lord God and to the presence of God with his people that he willingly sacrificed some creature comforts like sleep. And perhaps even hinted at in this text is sex as well. I'm going to withhold myself from things that are good for me, that I enjoy, that are righteous in their place, all the rest of it. I'm not going to do any of that until we've got God where God belongs. That's a pretty big commitment, isn't it? And the psalmist wants the current king to be treated by God on that basis. I think it's worth reflecting on how this idea resonates for those of us who call ourselves Christians and when we pray in Jesus' name. Because I think there's a similar thing that's going on. To pray in Jesus' name or to tag it on as a little sort of thing at the end of a prayer, it is not a formula to guarantee getting your prayers answered if only that were the case. Actually, it would be terrible. Imagine if Jesus said yes to everything that you'd ever asked for. How many people would be dead? (laughs) How many people would be really struggling? How rich would you be? I mean, honestly, let's think about this. It's not just a formula. It's a deep recognition that Jesus is our king. Jesus is the son of David, as the Gospels portray him, whose faithfulness to God is on our behalf. The things that Jesus endured, the hardships that he experienced, were for our sakes, that we might have life in his name. Isn't every appeal we make in Jesus' name then ultimately an appeal for God to remember and bless us for his sake because of what he has done on our behalf. Perhaps the psalm might help us to reflect on that a little bit. So, remember in David's favor, remember your promises, remember for the sake of the current king, David was committed wholeheartedly to the Lord. Let's read on. We heard of it in Ephrathah. You have to practice saying that, it's quite tricky. We found it in the fields of Yaar, Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. You see, there's a bit of a change of language here. The psalm begins with a a psalmist praying, but now all of a sudden we've got this corporate language, first-person corporate language. We, us, we heard, we found, let us go, let us worship. Why is this happening? What's the significance of the language? Well, the psalmist is doing something really profound. 
He's not just recounting speech because arguably you might not find exactly that speech in the story of David going to find the ark and bringing it back to Jerusalem. What he's doing is he is entering, he's bringing in the readers and the hearers, whoever they were at the time, and by extension us, into this story. So that by participating in the reading and hearing of the psalm, we become the people saying, we heard of the Ark of the Covenant. We found it. We went and worshipped at his footstool. We bowed down before him. It's kind of doing a thing here of associating the generation who is on pilgrimage to Jerusalem with the past pilgrims who went with David to bring God's presence back to the city. And then it looks forwards to future generations who were on pilgrimage with God, and it lumps them into the same community. So this story becomes our story. Their commitment becomes somehow ours. We hear and we respond and we say, let us go. Let us worship. We get brought into a story that is dripping with zeal for the priority of God and for a passionate, urgent desire to bring the presence of God into the heart of absolutely everything. We. The author of the psalm wasn't part of the group that first went and got the Ark of the Covenant. No way. But as he remembers, and as they journey to Jerusalem, they recognize themselves as being in continuity with that people. And so do we today as we enter into the psalm together. We read on. Rise up, O Lord and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness and let your faithful shout for joy. Wow, fantastic. Rise up, O Lord, and go to your resting place. Okay, these words are a kind of riff on the words that Moses spoke whenever the Israelites were getting up and following the cloud in the wilderness. You know the story of the Israelites wandering in the wilderness and God went before them in a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. And we read in the book of Numbers this, whenever the ark set out, Moses would say, Arise, O Lord, let your enemies be scattered and your foes flee before you. And whenever it came to rest, he would say, Return, O Lord, of the ten thousand thousands of Israel. Can you recognize the echoes and resonances of this text in the psalm? Rise up, O Lord. For the Israelites who, along with David, brought the ark to Jerusalem in the first place, those words, rise up, O Lord, would have been spoken. And it was perhaps the first time that they were being uttered for a long time. Some scholars think maybe even about a hundred years. The difference, of course, was that then the ark was being brought from somewhere else and brought to a permanent resting place in Jerusalem. But now in the psalm, in the context of Israelites on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem, the reciting of these words and the echoes of Israel's wilderness wanderings and Moses saying, rise up, O God. It was a way of acknowledging that God's presence indeed goes before us. God is the one who leads and guides and protects us. 
God is the one to whom we are following. In fact, we are going up to him. God has arisen. He has triumphed over his enemies. He is now enthroned in Jerusalem, on Zion, his holy mountain. And we make the pilgrimage faithfully, trustingly, urgently and passionately, seeking him, following him, rise up. But of course, there's a difference because this isn't a presence that is going to flit around and move around the wilderness now. God has settled. He has rested his presence in Jerusalem. It changes things slightly. What happens really is all these pilgrimages kind of come together. There was David's pilgrimage, the going out and the getting the ark and the bringing it back. There's the the pilgrimage of the Israelites as they go up to Jerusalem to worship three times a year. There's our pilgrimage, our walking with God, our faithful obedience, our on a journey with him, with a destination in mind. And these words resonate down through the ages. They resonate in our hearts. They do something in us as we say, God, rise up. It might be that we set out in some venture of faith, It might be God calls us to something big. It might be that there are challenges in our lives. We don't know what we're going to do. We don't know how it's all going to change. We say, rise up, O God. You who went before your people, you who have chosen to dwell amongst your people, rise up on our behalf. Go before us, O Lord. May your enemies be scattered. Protect us. Preserve us in our pilgrimage. Walk with us in the wilderness, O God. The psalm brings all these things together. Now what about this reference to priests clothed with righteousness and faithful people shouting for joy? You know, I don't know whether all the people on pilgrimage to Jerusalem were priests. Well, probably not many of them were, actually. Some some of them would have been. Some of them may not have been. But this idea of, a, of, a, of shouting for joy at God coming into his dwelling place, we find it in the story of David and the ark again. And this is a very well-known text. If you have been a Christian since, um, I don't know, I'm not sure when to kind of put it really. If, if you were perhaps, let's say, a soul survivor or something, circa 1998-ish, that ages you slightly. Um, and even not, even if you listen to Christian worship music from that, you might have heard, I will dance, I will sing, to be mad for my king. You know that one? I'll become... Even more undignified than this stupid, and it's like not really very undignified at all, is it? Um, It comes from this story. It comes from when David brought the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. It says David danced with all his might. David was girded with a linen effort. It means he was wearing his tighty whities. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the Ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the trumpets. This is not. High Anglican worship. I will dance, I will sing without moving my lips or my body. It's big, extravagant, loud. It's, you know, it's embarrassing. It's embarrassing. They was dancing in his pants. It's embarrassing. But it's passionate because it recognizes God is coming to dwell amongst his people. God is with us. No wonder he went bananas. No wonder they shouted and sang. 
Now, brothers and sisters, I know that we can't manufacture passion and urgency for God. I don't want you to manufacture passion and urgency for God. If you've got it in your mind or your heart at all to try and manufacture passion for God, stop it. Just please. It's religion. Stop it. Don't manufacture it. Don't cook it up. Don't try harder to be passionate or urgent. It lasts, well, I tell you what, it lasts for about a week. And then it runs out because it's all about your, like, spit and energy and all the rest of it. Does that mean that you shouldn't bother seeking passion and urgency before God? No, it doesn't. You should seek it, but don't manufacture it. We don't really need to try and repristinate why front worship. It's all kinds of wrong. <laughs> you can think of why. <laughs> Nevertheless, what we can do is wrestle with the theological realities that we confess and that we live in. Why do you think our worship leaders work so hard to make sure that what we are singing is theologically rich most of the time? It's pretty good. It's because that's the thing that fuels and drives and energizes our worship. The only problem with songs that go on about what I will do, how I will worship, how I will sing, is it puts all the onus on me, on you. And if you rock up at church and the worship leader who's been preparing all week and has been having a lovely time in God's presence starts off with this, I will sing to you, I love you with all of my heart, and you've had the worst week on records, well, there's a disconnect, isn't there? And so we try and shepherd ourselves into God's presence and being passionate and urgent for God by feeding ourselves with truth the theological realities of who God is and all God has become for us in Christ Jesus. That releases the passion and the urgency and the longings for God. And when we say, Lord, come by your Holy Spirit, be a spark to this fuel of God's wondrous love and presence and truth in our lives, well, the, the, react, the, the fruit of that is wonderful. It overflows in our lives. So don't manufacture something, but seek passion and urgency from God. Ah, well, no, see, Alan, you might say, it's important to be authentic. You know, what God really wants is authenticity in worship. Well, okay, but whose authenticity? Yours or God's? Because uh, it's important for me to be authentic means it's important for me to do what I feel is appropriate without really whether God thinks anything about it or not. Neil <coughs> Poir. It's God's authenticity that counts. That's why scripture tells us things like this about David. It's why the Psalms of Ascent are full of this kind of language that draws us in. It's not simply there, friends, to tell us how ancient Israelites or Christians maybe in the first century did stuff. It's supposed to overcome our reality. It's meant to do a job on you and I to batter our hearts, to soften them, to tenderize them, to draw out of us the same faithful response of love and praise and worship. Question, and it's not rhetorical, is the Holy Spirit God? Oh, I caught you. You're not sure, are you? The answer is yes. Is the Holy Spirit part of the triune reality that we confess as the one God? 
Right, so the Holy Spirit in the first century that poured out on the church on the day of Pentecost and the Holy Spirit that's in you today, is he the same? Right, so where is he? He's there. Have you got the lid down on him though? Have you shut that down neatly because it doesn't fit with nice, neat, tidy cultural expectations? Or has the spirit of the age so shaped our way of thinking about faith and scripture and God that we've somehow flipped it all upside down so that we are over scripture now? Well, scripture can't, can't, I can't be under scripture. That's, that's ridiculous. To be under the word of God, what are we talking about? I decide, thank you very much. Hmm. Sounds like a fairly fast track to judgment and problems to me. Friends, God is at work and alive and vibrantly present among us. God is calling us to authentic worship, which is not my authenticity, but his. God is calling us to be more David-like than perhaps we're all comfortable with. Please wear trousers. <laughs> Don't come in just your pants, I think is the thing, okay? But let's seek to be a people passionate and urgent and alive in worship. Don't get robbed. It's important to be authentic, yes, to God. Not you and your stuff, but God and his glories, God and his richness. I've labored that point enough. Let's move on. For your servant David's sake, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. There's a kind of hinge point in the psalm here where a prayer that Yahweh would not turn away the face of the king becomes a retelling of Yahweh's promise in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Here's the first bit. Do not turn away the face of your anointed one. That's the king again. The anointed one is the king. So for David's sake, there's another reflection from verse one. Don't turn away the face of your anointed. And then we read this. The Lord, oh, that should say swore to David, by the way. The Lord swore to David. Uh, the Lord swore to David a sure oath from which, what? He will not turn back. Do not turn away the face of your anointed one. The Lord swore an oath from which he will not turn back. There's a flip in the psalm here. It's moving from being a prayer and a longing based on what God had said to suddenly God's answer and affirmation of all of those things. The psalmist says, remember David, be faithful to the king, don't turn him away. God says, I have promised that I will not turn away the anointed. I will keep a son of David on the throne. This is how it works. We pray on the basis of God's word. God says, yeah, absolutely. I said that. I'm going to do it. Okay? God had promised David that one of his sons would always be, or a descendant of his would always be on the throne if they kept his promises, they kept his law, they kept in faithful step with him. You need to know that one of the tragedies of the Old Testament is the gradual unraveling of the house of David to the point when finally the house of David was carried off into exile by Babylonian invaders. 
And one of the things that the prophets in the Old Testament wrestle with is this notion of God's faithfulness. God said, God said that he would put a son of David on the throne forever. How's that gonna happen now? God, where is this, how does this work? There's a real serious wrestling with it through the rest of the Old Testament in the prophets. We'll have a little bit more to say about that shortly. Let's continue on reading. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his habitation. This is my resting place forever. Here I will reside, for I have desired it. I love this because there's a slight anomaly. David chose Zion for God to live. The Ark of the Covenant was off somewhere else, in Ephrathah, in the fields of Yah. <laughs> David hears about it, I'm going to bring him back to Jerusalem. So technically, David chose Jerusalem for God's dwelling place, Zion. But maybe this is one of those times where somehow in the providence of God and the mystery of the divine reality, human choices are divine choices and vice versa. Now we're the ones that puzzle over that because we can't get our heads around it rationally or whatever, or logically. But in God's ways, often somebody's choices, that's God owns that and says, yeah, okay, that's... And in fact, that's what we find when we just read on a little bit. This is my resting place forever. Here I will reside for I have desired it. Okay, so David chooses and God says yes to David's choice and then that becomes I've desired it. This is where I will presence myself amongst my people. There's a kind of mystery in it, but in the end it is God who has desired to be in this place, to take up permanent residence on Zion in the temple with his people. And now we get this section where there is a kind of direct answering of some of the prayers and some of the specifics of the prayer that we had in verses 8 to 10. The psalm says, if you remember, rise up, O Lord, and go to your resting place. Well, look at that first verse there. This is my resting place forever. So the psalmist says, please do this, and God says, yes, okay. The prayer was, let your priests be clothed with righteousness, and now God says, it's priests I will clothe with salvation. The prayer was, let your faithful shout for joy, and God says, it's faithful will shout for joy. Now, there's an affirmation from God that this place I have chosen, and all the things, all the longings and the desires, yes, because I have come to dwell amongst my people in this place and in this way. And it goes on, Lord, the Lord says, I will cause a horn to sprout up for David. I've prepared a lamp for my anointed one. His enemies I will clothe with disgrace, but on him his crown will gleam. You know, when scripture speaks about a horn like that, it's a symbol of strength and power and authority. God is saying, I will give strength and power and authority to David's line. I will cause a horn to sprout from David. If you've been a Christian for quite a while and you've listened to numerous sermons and read the Bible, then you might be starting to get an idea of where this might be going. The crown on the head of God's king will gleam. 
but God's enemies, the king's enemies, will bite the dust, so to speak. I want to wrap this all up, or start to wrap this all up. I'm going to do that preaching thing now. Just coming into land, <laughs> just in a holding pattern, coming around again, coming into land now. Now I'm just once more around. I'm not going to tell you how many more rounds there will be, but maybe one or two. I want to wrap this up by pointing out, and Hannah's led us in this earlier, and it's beautiful, and I'm so glad because it feels like so often, you know, you know this is weird. I shouldn't be surprised at all. I sit at home, I sit in the study on my own, like chipping away, working away, reading, thinking, praying, writing, like trying to be faithful to what I'm, you know, following through and unpacking this text for the church. And then you get to church and the worship leaders planned three songs that basically follow the thread of your sermon. I, I didn't plan that. Or, the, or Pete Roderick has kind of, you know, kind of done this where somehow he knows and like he's brought a lot, and you think, wow. And yeah, I could be upset, because it's annoying. I worked hard, and I like to go, surprise. Um, not really. Um, really and truly, it's a sense of God speaking, isn't it? Please note that. It's not just, oh, this is coincidental thing. I oh, wasn't that lucky. No, 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 no. God speaking. Beautiful. I wrote down here, I want to wrap this sermon up by pointing out how all of these prayers and promises have found their yes and amen in Jesus and the church. The yes and the amen. Right? Not a text that you hear spoken every week at church, is it? Corinthians, Paul, yes and amen. But that's where we're going. The psalmist is speaking directly about Mount Zion, isn't he? About Jerusalem, about the mountain that's there now in the Middle East, and the dwelling of God among his people, and God's ongoing commitment to uphold the king for David's sake. But as Christians, we confess that these things have, let's say, an extended significance. For Christians, we don't read these things and go, but none of that matters anymore because Jesus, da-da, I will dance, I will sing. There's an extended significance where the old feeds into the new and the new gives new resonance to the old and we find that these things together both witness to the realities that we live in and experience now. So we confess, as we have this morning, that Jesus died and was buried and on the third day he was what? He was raised up, resurrected from the dead and then he ascended to the right hand of God. Let's God, arise! And the church says, yes, amen, he has risen up. God indeed in Christ has arisen from the dead and has ascended to the throne and has ascended to his place of rest where he now sits, having made sacrifice for sins and the lamb upon the throne shares in the glories of God and is the sovereign over all things and is waiting for everything, all his enemies to be made a footstool for his feet. Hallelujah, our King Jesus, our son of David is alive and reigning and secure in the holy places. And that's our confidence, brothers and sisters. It's our hope and our strength that he is there. There's more to say though about this resting place of God. This is what Revelation 21 says. I saw the holy city, 
the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Listen, the holy city, the new Jerusalem, it's the church. It's not some brick and mortar city. The church comes down out of heaven, adorned as a bride for Christ. It's not that in the end the church beams up to heaven to be with Jesus in heaven, but in the end, the end of the Bible is that heaven and earth are joined. Christ comes down to reign and the holy city descends and Christ dwells in the midst of his holy city forever and ever and ever and ever. And the it goes on in Revelation. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, See, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them. They will be his peoples and God himself will be with them. Where is God's eternal resting place? With us, with the church, not heaven. It's in us, in the new Jerusalem, the holy city, the people purchased with his blood from every tribe, nation and tongue. We don't go to his rest. He comes and dwells with us in a new heavens and earth in the midst of his people, never to depart again. God in the midst of us. God once more dwelling with mortals. And, wow, he'll wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more for the first things have passed away. Friends, there's such glory that we have inherited and will inherit. Such glory. But listen, it's not just pie in the sky when you die. Right now, again, we've heard it today. We have been raised up with Christ and seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. What is happening now in this moment is that you and I are seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus because we're joined to him. Because his spirit indwells us. We are in union with him. In this room, it's like the throne room of God. Like, wow, we're, he, we were seated with him now in heavenly places. Well, I'm sitting on this chair. Yeah, but you're in Christ. And that's the biggest reality that you can possibly imagine. The theological reality for us is that we are in him now and that we will, he will be with us then. You see, that's why we talk about the Spirit of God as a deposit guaranteeing our future inheritance. Oh, friends, I, I love prophecy that lifts our eyes and causes us to rejoice in God. I love it. I love tongues and interpretation. I love the chaos of it all. Tongues, flipping X, speaking in tongues. Nuts, sounds nuts. That's what some people said in Paul's time. And he's like, yeah, exactly. And that kind of just shows the judgment of God against them, but those who are in Christ. The, the madness of it all, the sense of us, you know, us, flipping heck, being a people in Christ, reigning with Christ, seated now in heavenly places in Christ. Uh, us? What? what real, me? Yes. Yeah, now. That's our reality now. And the spirit in us is not just to liven up our meetings a little bit. Oh, gosh, don't get robbed. Or do you have the Holy Spirit? Do you have contributions? No, we have the Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing our future inheritance. The Spirit isn't just coming to us to help us to manage, to cope with life a little bit better. 
The Spirit isn't poured out so that we can just have a couple of people who are a little bit more, you know, woo-woo-woo pious than others. The Spirit in us witnesses with us. We are going to, he's going to reign with, we will, hang on, let's get this right. We reign with him now. He's returning and he will dwell with us then. It points our hearts and our minds in that direction. The Spirit is the deposit. You know what it's like. You've paid a deposit on things, I'm sure. Maybe you paid a deposit on a house or a car or some you know, expensive white goods or something. Our boy wants us to buy an uni pizza oven. That'll be a remortgage. But there's a, there's a deposit. You, put, you pay a deposit and then you look forward eagerly because that, that guarantees that. The Spirit poured into us guarantees that. The experience of the Spirit and the presence of God now is a foretaste of that. The presence of God in our worship now is just an incy-wincy hors d'oeuvre of when God dwells again with mortals in a new heavens and earth. We've been clothed in righteousness. We've been made a kingdom of priests to sing the praises of our God. So when the church cries out, rise up, O Lord, and go to your resting place, (laughs) it's a cry that God may hasten the day when he will come and dwell with us in the new Jerusalem forever, with us. And God will say on that day, this is my resting place forever, for I have desired it. No flipping wonder the people of God shout for joy. Let's pray. God, we thank you that Psalms can be long because there's lots to say. We thank you that you've got much to say to us and we want to hear well and we want to respond well. Fill us again, oh God, with your Holy Spirit. I pray for brothers and sisters who are dry and bored and listless and lifeless and afraid and bound up in culture's expectations of what it looks like to be a believer. Set us free, Lord Jesus, that we might enter into the inheritance that you purchased for us with your blood, which is the gift of the Spirit, the the guarantee. Flood us again, O Lord, not that we might just have more exciting meetings, but that we might anticipate and understand the glories that are before us and that we will soon inherit. Rise up, O Lord, we pray. Be glorified in your wonderful name. Amen. That's it for this week. Have a fantastic week. Remember, press in. We'll see you next time.